What's going on, everybody? My name is Luke Marshall, and you are listening to Things Observed. And today, we are going to be talking about Plum Island, Lyme's disease, ticks, everybody's favorite arachnid, the tick, because we all love arachnids, and everybody loves the most out of the arachnids, the tick. So I thought that why not talk about all of our favorite cute little blood-sucking creature ticks, Lyme's disease, and Plum Island, and whether or not Lyme's disease is a result of United States biological warfare research. And I think that today is going to be an interesting episode. I think that you guys are going to enjoy it. And I think that with all the COVID-19 stuff that has happened, that biological warfare research, bioweapons, gain-of-function research, all of this stuff is kind of on everybody's minds, at least to some extent. And I think that stories like what we were talking about with the anthrax attacks the last couple of weeks, or what we're going to be talking about today, talking about Plum Island and, you know, just some of this biological warfare research stuff, I think that it can kind of tell us a little bit about some of the stuff that we're currently going through right now by taking a glimpse into the past. So I think that this is going to be very interesting. We're also going to get into a host of all other kinds of things like Nazi scientist, Operation Paperclip type stuff. So it's going to be good. And we're going to do another episode on Plum Island. And next week we will talk about some characters who we have already spoken about in the past. Like I believe Edward Lansdale is going to come up in the next episode. So we most certainly have some interesting ground to cover. But with so much information to discuss, what about we just go ahead and we get into the subject. So on the east bank of the mouth of the Connecticut River, just north of Long Island Sound, is a quaint little coastal town, the town of Old Lyme. But there would be trouble in paradise in the middle of the summer of 1975, and it was hot and humid weather, typical of the summers, and that is when something strange would begin to happen. Polly Murray and Judith Minch would begin to notice that their children started developing these odd systems, both physical and mental. And so these mothers would soon learn that other parents in the town were observing similar symptoms in their own children. And so children and some adults as well were beginning to suffer from sore joints, throbbing headaches, skin rashes, the list goes on. And so the two mothers would approach the Connecticut Department of Health with some of their concerns. And at the onset of this situation, there would be 39 kids and a dozen adults who would be diagnosed with rheumatoid arthritis. And people suffering from this odd outbreak were said to have Lyme arthritis, which is, you know, certainly kind of strange that we begin to see all these people in this very localized area who are beginning to all of a sudden develop arthritis all at the same time. So they begin to call it Lyme arthritis. But in the course of a couple years, this Lyme arthritis, as they were calling it, would be found to be associated with blood-sucking deer ticks. And so in 1981, the National Institute of Health scientist, Dr. Wally Bergdorfer, who we will discuss more in the next episode because he has 
some quite interesting things to say, and we're going to talk some more in this episode, in the next episode, about Wally Bergdorfer, and specifically the book Bitten by Chris Newby, where there's some pretty crazy revelations about Dr. Wally Bergdorfer. Dorfer, man, I can't speak. But anyways, Bergdorfer would discover a spiral bacteria in the fluid of Ixodes tick, or I think that's how it is, a hard body tick, kind of like the deer tick and some other ticks. And this spiral bacteria is what we now know today as Lyme disease. And this is when Lyme's disease would be discovered. And so the symptoms of Lyme's disease aren't limited to sore joints, headaches, and skin rashes, but they also include fevers, chills, swollen lymph nodes, lethargy, and if left untreated, these existing symptoms can progress and also new symptoms can be developed like dizziness, shortness of breath, heart palpitations, nerve pain, numb hands and feet, severely swollen joints, neck stiffness, encephalitis and meningitis, meningitis, which are both just basically types of brain swelling, and facial palsy. There's also a study titled Lyme Disease and Neuropsychiatric Illness, which I will link in the show notes, which describes some of the changes that can occur in personality and mental wellness, at least from the perspectives of the authors of this study. It In their research, it can cause some of these. And a quote from the study says, A broad range of psychiatric reactions have been associated with Lyme disease, including paranoia, dementia, schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, panic attacks, major depression, anorexia nervosa, and obsessive-compulsive disorder. Depressive states among patients with late Lyme disease are fairly common, ranging across studies from 26 to 66%, which that kind of seems like a bit of a wide margin. But anyways, my mom has a co-worker who... She ended up actually getting divorced from her husband, but her husband would have Lyme's disease and he would be on all different kinds of medication, including Adderall, due to the lethargy that one can experience. And this is just, you know, an anecdotal story, but I remember hearing stories from my mom about how this guy kind of, you know, used to seem to be a lot different, had some personality changes, started doing things that were definitely untypical of him, including to having an affair, which by no means is Lyme's disease justification for that. And who knows, sometimes people change, sometimes people do the wrong thing. But after learning this, it kind of made me wonder if this seeming sudden change had to do with Lyme's disease. And I find it very interesting, not only the physical ailments, but also some of the mental ailments that can take place, at least according to some researchers, as a result of Lyme's disease. So Lyme's disease is definitely something with a wide range of symptoms and probably due in part to this, but also due in part to the reluctance of medical authorities and stuff. It's always been kind of hard to get diagnosed 
the author Chris Newby, who we're drawing some of today's research and who we're going to heavily draw from next week, she writes about her problems in getting diagnosed with Lyme's disease, and she basically had to seek out a doctor who specialized in tick-borne illness. So there's always kind of been this reluctance to do research into Lyme's disease, and there's also always kind of been this difficulty in getting diagnosed with Lyme's disease. And I'm sure that you have plenty of people with Lyme's disease who get diagnosed with something altogether different or who get different diagnoses from all different doctors that they go to. But anyhow, this does not exhaust by any means all the numerous problems that have been said to transpire after contracting Lyme's disease. And most people know that this disease comes from a tick latching onto someone and it is when this happens that the tick regurgitates hundreds of Borrelia burgdorferi bacteria into the blood of the individual who is unfortunate enough to pick up one of these blood-sucking hitchhikers. And as you guys can know, this bacteria Borrelia burgdorferi, it was named after Willie or Wally Borgdorfer, who we're going to be talking about more in the time to come. So something that is also interesting about this is that ticks can sense the exhalation of carbon dioxide and then it will make its way to whatever mammalian host is so unlucky as to exhale carbon dioxide around its presence and it is then when the tick will plunge its mouth hooks into their skin, their cute little mouth hooks. And so then the tick saliva will help it hitch onto its host. It actually kind of acts almost like a glue, if you will. And the tick will even secrete an anti-inflammatory host. So the host is an anti-inflammatory, excuse me. So the host is less likely to detect its presence, you know, so you don't have quite the swelling and stuff that you maybe would if it didn't secrete this anti-inflammatory. It will also counteract antibodies of the host. So this makes the tick quite the resilient little blood-sucking creature. And it is due to the tick being what the author of Lab 257, another one of the sources that we will be heavily drawing from in both today and next week's episode, um, Michael Christopher Carroll, the author of Lab 257, he describes the tick as being the perfect germ vector. So the arachnid, due to this reason, has long been a fascination to those interested in biological warfare research, whether they be in Nazi Germany, Imperial Japan, or the good old U.S. of A. And of course, we've talked about throughout this podcast, it you know, keeps becoming a recurring subject along with some others that you know, we absorb some of these Nazi Germany and imperial Japanese tricks of the trade into not only our biological warfare research, but just in general to our system of governance and chicanery that we got going on in this wonderful land. So anyhow, the tick is not only, um, not only is the tick of use to make biological warfare, but the BB bacteria, that Bordorfri bacteria, would also be nifty in biological warfare as well due to the germ's difficulty to destroy. And it has this very intense hard outside wall which makes it hard to destroy. And it's also resilient in the sense that the germ can often ward off antibiotic drugs and immune 
responses. So whether we're talking about the tick or the bacteria, which is associated with Lyme's disease, both are resilient and both would potentially be of interest to those who are wanting to make some sort of biological warfare weapon due to these factors. And so it's, you know, not that far-fetched to think that this could have been of interest to some of the germ warriors of the Cold War era. Era, And we know that the Cold Warriors, my audience is definitely familiar with this. We have a lot of loons in the Cold Warrior and the biological warfare community at this time who weren't necessarily thinking about anything other than how to destroy communism and communist countries. And at a lot of the times, things like public health and people's personal safety took a backseat to their insatiable thirst to stomp out communism. So, why did this strange disease spring up in Connecticut in 1975, seemingly out of nowhere? Well, detractors of the Lyme disease as a bioweapon leak theory tend to have one line of argument from my limited research, and I think it is summarized quite well by the always truthful and fair bastion of truth and intellectualism, <laughs> Snopes.com. We all love Snopes here, the kings of debunking, when what they do and mean by debunking is like not actually addressing anything that proponents of a certain idea or sometimes fact even have to say. So what do the bastions of truth at Snopes say? Well, I'll just go ahead and read from them in order to summarize kind of the counter opinion to the one that's going to be provided in this podcast. So the what Snopes says is, the primary problem with the notion that Lyme disease was not a naturally occurring germ is that the occurrence of Borrelia bacteria living inside ticks goes back to a time at least millions of years before humans existed to insert the bacteria into ticks. In 2014, for example, scientists found a 15-million-year-old tick fossil found in a chunk of amber from the Dominican Republic that showed evidence of being infected with Borrelia bacteria. The existence of Borrelia bacteria in the Northeast United States similarly predates the U.S. Biological Weapons Program. A study conducted by Yale researchers who compared B. burgdorferi genomes from different areas collected over a 30-year period calculated that the bacterium has been in North America longer than humans, at least 60,000 years. This lends support to the more, the more scientifically accepted view about the emergence of Lyme disease that had long been dormant in the United States until ecological and economic changes produced conditions that allowed its spread to flourish. Um, should have said ecological, my bad. I do understand the word and how to pronounce it. But anyhow, so this is kind of the typical line of thinking when it comes to Lyme's disease, that it is these changes in the environment that make it to where we begin to see Lyme's disease. However, I think that this line of arguments either willfully or unknowingly fails to mention is that scientists conducting biological warfare experiments may have tried to ramp up the pathogen's virulence. 
However, this totally neglects the history of research, you know, uh, I'm saying that the Snopes line of thought totally neglects the history of research made to alter both transmissibility of viruses and different things, also their pathogenesis, um, which is the process by which a disease develops, whether it be the onset or the progression of the disease, as well as a history of researchers altering host range, which means the type of host a certain pathogen can infect. This is, you know, stuff like gain of function and other forms of research. That's stuff that at the top of the episode, I think, has been on everybody's mind since all of this COVID-19 stuff. And we have the Wuhan lab where we also have American interest. It's not just what, you know, the Trump people would have you believe that it's evil China that came up with COVID-19. But there was also, you know... National Institute of Health funding going through there. We have people like Peter Daszak and EcoHealth Alliance. And so we know that this gain-of-function research has been happening. We know that people have, for a long time, long before the Wuhan lab of virology, have been taking things and making it more transmissible or that they have been taking something that is zoological and making it to where all of a sudden it can transfer to humans. We know all of this stuff is happening. It's all on the books. We don't even have to theorize about the existence of gain and function research and all these other forms of research that have a long history. And so it's by no means ridiculous to ponder the possibility that the pathogen responsible for Lyme's disease may have been altered in some way shape or form which this argument entirely fails to take into account i haven't seen the excuse me i haven't seen the knowledgeable authors of lab 257 or from the book bitten which we are drawing today's research from or the other people who i've looked who have talked about this idea i have not seen any of them saying that borrelia bacteria just you know had never existed before you know, 1975 or something like this. Instead, we're just drawing some, not even conclusions necessarily, but just some questions from the proximity of Plum Island to Old Lyme and the outbreak of all this this stuff so suddenly in such a localized area and the fact that we don't see this going back further into the past and, and all of this different stuff. So I haven't seen anybody... Um, at all, you know, say that Borrelia bacteria hasn't existed for a long time or anything like that. And so I think that the argument would not even be kind of what Snopes insinuates by this and others have insinuated by this, you know, the bastions of truth in the mainstream media that Borrelia bacteria didn't exist until then. But perhaps that it is possible that the explanation could be that biological warfare researchers have done research in order to increase its virulence, virulence, and uh, all of this stuff. So anyhow, let's get back to the subject at hand. I mean, I guess we were on the subject at hand. That's just a speech tick at this point. But what I meant to say is, Let's now dive into the Plum Island Research Facility, and you can decide the veracity of the, you know, Plum Island lab leak theory, if you will. So, let's get into it. So, Plum Island is an 840-acre island less than two miles off the east end of Long Island, 
only 85 miles away from New York City. It doesn't even exist on most maps. So pretty much since the inception of Lyme disease, the areas close to Plum Island have had the highest incidence of Lyme. So Michael Christopher Carroll, the author of Lab 257, has said of the island, you can pinpoint cases of Lyme disease on a map of the United States by drawing a circle around the area of largest infection. Now you can tighten that circle until a single point is reached. That point, Plum Island. So Plum Island also lies in the middle of the bird migration highway known as the Atlantic Flyway. So due to all the activities of birds traveling to and fro this area, we have over 140 species of wild birds who are going to be traveling around this Plum Island area. And the fact that, that when the birds aren't migrating through this migration highway that they local birds are traveling between Long Island, Connecticut, and Plum Island, whether they are foraging for food or they're looking for some good old bird companionship. Carol says that Plum Island presents more vectors for the spread of infectious disease than perhaps anywhere else. And especially when you take into account that we have some weird disease research laboratory there it's you know not looking too good for plum island so not only are there foraging birds for ticks to feast upon like a good old thanksgiving meal but there are also thousands of mice and rats as well as wild deer which could foreseeably spread sickness throughout the area so you're probably going right now well, how could deer spread ticks to other places from Plum Island if Plum Island is an island, you ask? Well, if you Google this, I feel like this is like a, a, a Joe Rogan fact. I feel like I need to have weed smoke billowing, billowing around my head and my, you know, multiple thousand dollar studio while I say this fact. Like... Hey, Jamie, Google how far deer can swim. This is crazy. You're not going to believe this. But anyhow, if Jamie were to pull that up, what Jamie would pull up, because when you type in how fast can deer, not how fast, how far can deer swim into Google, this is the first thing that pops up. I'll try to include this into the, to the show notes too, but I might forget about this because this is less important but anyways the first thing that pops up is most common deer species are able to swim for several miles across rivers lakes ponds or even parts of the ocean they sometimes swim towards islands to find food or shelter which can be up to 10 miles of continuous swimming young fawns or weakened deer obviously don't always have the ability to swim very far and that 10 miles that happens to be just about the distance that plum island is from the mainland and there are stories of deer swimming out to plum island in order to forage get some nice little snacks from plum island so carol also says in regards to these swimming deer that in the 50s one could often hear the cock of a rifle from plum island that would signal the death of one of these animals that had came from the mainland to forage because at the onset of Plum Island's existence, security measures were taken much more seriously 
But as the Army became less involved in Plum Island and the USDA became, you know, more the ones who were responsible for Plum Island, and as directors of Plum Island changed from director to director, director, we, over the time, see safety protocols at Plum Island being taken less and less seriously, up until the future when there are actually outbreaks that are restricted to the island and, you know, maybe one where there were animals outside of Plum Island who were infected. And this is not in regards to Lyme's disease. I mean, you can pull up the Plum Island Wikipedia page and find all of that to yourself. Not that you should trust Wikipedia, but my point is, you know, if you Google Plum Island, you click on the Wikipedia page, they'll have the Snopes debunking attitude when it comes to Lyme disease. But, I mean, it is just open knowledge. I mean, people like the New York Times and other people have published stuff about how there have been all these safety protocols not being taken at Plum Island. And so not only, you know, do we have these foraging birds, do we have, but we have mice, rats, we have deer swimming out there. And so over time with these declining safety measures of the island, Carol says, you know, you start hearing the less gun cocks out there, there are less deer being shot out there, and that more and more deer could be observed swimming to and fro, fro the island, you know, from the island to the mainland and back and all this stuff. And, you know, they would be carrying ticks with them all along the way. I guess the question is whether they possibly picked up some Lyme disease-infected ticks on their way back to the mainland at some point, perhaps right before the outbreak in 1975 occurred. So, Carol also points out that while many deer were shot, were shot there, there was no stopping the birds who are migrating to and from Plum Island. And given that Old Lyme is the closest mainland town to Plum Island, I don't think that one should be scolded for having at least a curiosity of whether Plum Island researchers had Alter B. Burgdorferi bacteria and if this could have resulted in there being more virulence in this result in Lyme's disease. So now let's respond to some of the other common theories laid out by the, uh, you know, Snopes article. Let's dig a little bit deeper into the mainstream theory. And, you know, just to repeat again, um, the last tidbit of that Snopes article this lends support to the more scientifically accepted view, so this is the scientifically accepted view, that the emergence of Lyme's disease, of the emergence of Lyme disease, that it had long been dormant in the United States until ecological and economic changes produced conditions that allowed its spread to flourish. Well, what are some of the problems with this theory? Well, you know, the theory basically in a little bit of a longer format goes that over a century ago that there were far fewer wooded areas but that the conservation movement over time made forests replace farmlands and this led to a surge in deer birds other woodland creatures as a result which in turn led to an increase in the tick population and that this increase in the tick population and the you know, more woodland areas now exist and created the perfect environment for Lyme's disease to spread and that people just began to notice what could be said to be a gradual problem 
um, and that only after this attention was attracted due to more cases popping up did Lyme's disease become discovered. But Carroll and others have stated that nothing, you know, could be further from the truth. The initial outbreak in Old Lyme was confined to a specific geographic location that just so happens to exist 10 miles south of Old Lyme, the closest mainland town to Plum Island, where internal government documents prove that there were gaping holes in the roof where air currents and insects could you know, freely travel from. We also know that Plum Island lies in the middle of flight vectors of birds, you know, 140 different species of wild birds that could be seen coming to and fro this area. And that we also know that there were deer traveling from the mainland to the island and back, and that as time went on, that less of these deer were being shot. I mean, there are stories at the beginning of Plum Island, basically nothing except for the researchers after taking numerous showers to prevent any kind of transmission of anything. Nothing could come to the island and leave that wasn't a researcher who had been given the clearance to come. I mean, there's a story of this one guy, it's real sad, who was out on a boat with his dog and his dog jumped into the water in order to chase after a piece of driftwood and he ended up coming to the banks of Plum Island. The dog was killed and the guy who owned the dog was detained for a long period of time until he could be shown to not have anything, you know. So, I mean, that is the level of seriousness at which it was, you know, taken at the beginning of Plum Island. But over time, we had definitely much more lax measures going on. But we also know that at Plum Island, not only are there deer and their, you know, wild birds that could be carrying ticks, you know, back to the mainland with them, but we also know that at Plum Island that some animals were held in outdoor pens where they were injected with virus vaccines and they did all kinds of other stuff, but these animals who were kept in these outdoor pens would be fed out of open-air feeding troughs and that workers at the islands had witnessed birds coming in and out of the pens and snacking from these feeding troughs outside. And we also know that in 1978 that um, there was a disease released to animals outside the center and that in 2004 that there were two separate releases of foot and mouth disease inside the center. So we have this place where we have all of this different animal research and as we'll get into it appears to be very strongly supported that there was also biological warfare type research going on at Plum Island. We have these lax safety measures. We have the fact that it's, you know, right up, you know, 10 miles away from Old Lyme, Connecticut. That Old Lyme, Connecticut is the closest place, mainland town, to Plum Island. And so we, you know, begin to see all of this stuff coming about and we're going to get deeper into this but we also know that at plum island research was being carried out on ticks the former director of plum island dr jerry callis has said that to associate lyme disease in plum island is absurd but out the other side of his mouth he's also admitted that plum island experimented with ticks but never outside of containment we had a tick colony where you take them and feed them on the virus and breed the ticks to see how many generations it would last on and on until it's diluted recently they reinstalled the tick colony 
And so when he says the virus, I don't think that he's talking about Lyme's disease, but I think that he's just saying viruses in general. You know, they would take ticks, they would give them viruses, and they would see how many generations it would take for the ticks to breed out this virus. Um, journalist Carl Grossman would ask a Plum Island chief about the claims in a book called The Belarus Secret, which was written by John Loftus, in which we will talk about more later on in the episode. I will also try to keep in mind to put that in the show notes. But what would be discussed, and we will discuss some later, is that this Plum Island employee would deny any connection to Lyme disease, but he would also say that various soft body ticks had been experimented on concerning heart water, blue tongue, and African swine fever viruses. So, you know, we know that they're experimenting with ticks and these viruses. But however, what he failed to mention, and there is an important distinction here, you know, because when we're talking about Lyme's disease, we are talking, I believe, if not all the time, mostly among hard body ticks. But what this guy failed to mention is that Plum Island was also working on hard body ticks. So a USDA internal document from 1978 titled African Swine Fever says that in 1975 and 1976, at the same time of the Lyme outbreaks, that adult and nymphal stages of Lone Star and Cayenne ticks were incapable of transmitting African swine virus. So if you go further into this document, basically what we learn is that people at Plum Island were experimenting with these ticks and feeding them viruses and then testing them on pigs during what Carol calls the ground zero year for Lyme's disease. And we are going to get more into Plum Island and piggy research and some stuff that happened in Cuba during the Cold War. And that is when next episode we'll get back into Ed Lansdale, who we talked about in great detail in the third part, the final part of the Blood and Gold series. I also went on William Ramsey Investigates, and you can you know find that on different podcasts and streaming platforms and stuff. And I also talked about Edward Lansdale in some great detail with him. So anyways, but... We do know that the people at Plum Island were experimenting with hard body ticks, that they were feeding them viruses, they were testing them on pigs, and this is all during the time that Carol refers to as the ground zero year for Lyme's disease. So once again, are we crazy to you know question whether or not that it's possible that Lyme's disease came from Plum Island? So that's not even to mention the dark history of some of the people who work there, such as, you know, Nazi scientists with a penchant for tick research who, you know, could have possibly carried on that research with the army and Fort Detrick and stuff and, you know, possibly could have used Plum Island as a place to do this. Um, and that's Dr. Eric Traub. It's a German spelling of Eric, so it might be Eric or something like that, but I'm going to call him Eric Traub. But, you know, let me just read one little portion from Lab 257 real quick before we jump to him, just to talk some more about some of the tick research that we know for a fact was going on at Plum Island. So this is going to be from Lab 257 by Michael Christopher Carroll. Forgive me because this is going to be a bit of a long reading. I'm going to read about a page or so. 
So forgive me for that, but I think that it's interesting, and I can't remember all of this off the top of my head, and I didn't put it into my limited notes that I made on the subject, but anyhow, let me just go ahead and read from this so you can get it with no factual errors, which I might would give you if I tried to do it from memory. So anyways... Entomologist Dr. Richard Indris joined Plum Island in 1981 to spearhead increased tick research. Indris and the African Swine Fever team leader, Dr. William Hess, went to Cameroon and other parts of Africa on tick-hunting safaris. They stuck their arms deep inside burrows and were occasionally bitten by snakes and rats. They searched out wild warthog burrows in the brush using a tick sucker, a reverse leaf blower with attached sieves and filters to strain hundreds of tick spe specimens out of the moist sand. They set out little blocks of dry ice 30 feet apart and watched the ticks march into the smoking lumps. The carbon dioxide attracted them, fooling the ticks into thinking it was the exhale of mammalian hosts. Indris constructed two high-hazard insectatories, insect labs, one in the back corner of Laboratory 101 and another in the basement. And at Plum Island, there was two main labs. This is me interjecting, but we have Lab 101 and Lab 257, the name actually of the book that I'm reading from. But anyhow... Um, each insectatory was equipped with sand-filled climate chamber incubators with lighting that simulated photo periods, protective rims around the airlock doors covered in sticky glue, and seals across all windows and drains. The ticks were fed on the blood of hairless, suckling baby mice where they would attach and molt and breed. All told, he reared over 200,000 hard and soft-bodied ticks of multiple species. Indris helped handle the tiny parasites with extreme care, using fine art brushes to move the minute nymphs into a transfer container, a urine specimen cup, and a screen glued together with globs of plaster of Paris. To test the ticks, the scientists first anesthetized diseased pigs, goats, mice, and calves, then placed the ticks on the sleeping animals. The ticks immediately attached and dug their mouth parts in. After a few hours of feeding, technicians detached the ticks with a soft tip forcep. Indris set up quite an impressive tick colony when he arrived in 1981, but there was substantial, but there was substantial earlier tick research. Dr. Hess's tick experiments in the 60s and 70s with the Lone Star tick and others were conducted in unsafe conditions. Indris said that the early tick research wasn't focused. Plum Island was not set up to deal with ticks at all. In 1980, a Plum Island Scientific Oversight Committee urged the USDA to hire an appropriately trained medical entomologist, calling it a priority item. The consultants also strongly recommended the construction of a modern-approved insectatory be undertaken for future research. The advisors had serious concerns with the primitive tick colony then in operation under the veterinarian Dr. Hess, who had been with Plum Island since 1953. Dr. Indris and his boss, Hess, were both fired in 88 by incoming director Dr. Roger Breeze, who promptly closed down their precious tick labs. They wrapped up research, put the viruses back in the freezers, and dumped the ticks into the autoclave, which steamed them at over 100 degrees centigrade. Indris, who went to work for Merck Pharmaceutical Scoffs at a Plum Island Lyme disease connection, those kinds of comments indicated gross ignorance of Lyme disease. 
Before being fired by Dr. Breeze, Indris served as a scientific member of Southampton's Joint Lyme Disease Task Force and says with conviction he never heard of any Lyme disease relationship. But Dr. Indris wasn't on Plum Island in 1975. His entomology expertise and the modern improved tick insectatory he built were a full six years away. Unfortunately, Dr. Hess, who could shed light on the old tick experiments, died in 1999 in New Hampshire. It is clear, though, that he was proud of and cherished his 35-year scientific career there. His family scattered his ashes and plum gut among the trade winds of Plum Island. So anyways, that was a little bit of a long reading, but I do think that it was instructive for us to get some more knowledge about that. And sorry if you could hear pages flipping there. My mic seems to have a tendency to pick up a lot of different things that I don't mean it to. But anyhow, that was Lab 257. But there we can see that not only was there tick research going on when this new entomologist came up into Plum Island, but that tick research had been going on there beforehand, and that this tick research was not probably done under the best conditions. So this is a very primitive layout of the argument as to both you know, the mainstream argument as to we have these ecological conditions that are changing, we have more woodlands, and that you basically just start to see uh, Lyme's disease because it's becoming more prevalent and it's coming to the public's attention more. But then we have the idea that we are laying out here that is laid out very well in the book Bitten by Chris Newby and in the book Lab 257 by Michael Christopher Carroll that we have Plum Island, which is not too far away. We have all these different U.S. biological warfare interest in ticks and how ticks are these, you know, great host for biological warfare stuff and how they would serve a good job there. We have all this different neglect that is going on at Plum Island and all these lax safety standards over the years and so on and so on. But let's get into the Nazi scientist. I'm sure some of you guys have been waiting for this ever since the moment I mentioned Nazi scientist. I know that in my circle of, you know, podcasters and researchers and you know, independent investigators, which probably all of you guys are, but, you know, that when you hear Nazi within any close proximity to scientists, your ears perk up and you get very interested. And so let's get into this paperclip guy, Dr. Eric, or Eric, I'm going to pronounce Eric because I am a good old American boy who loves the red, white, and blue, and I have no respect for this man, so why would I pronounce his name correctly? I don't care to pronounce this guy's name correctly. You want to know what spelling is? Spell? You hear that? Spells? Witchcraft? Black magic? You ever heard of it? That's what spelling your enemy's name is doing. You are just adding to their magical spells. I don't actually mean that, but I just don't care to try and figure out if I'm pronouncing Mr. Traub's first name correct. So we're going to either refer to him as Dr. Traub, the Nazi, or Eric. Good old Eric boy. But anyhow, let's get into Eric Traub.
So, Dr. Eric Traub, is he bad? Is he good? Let's find out. So, Dr. C.A. Mitchell, during the Plum Island Dedication Day ceremony, would begin his speech by saying, I often think and almost tremble at what could, at what could have taken place had our Teutonic enemies been more alive to this. It is said that some of their scientists pointed out the advantages to be obtained from the artificial sowing of disease agents that attack domestic animals. Fortunately, blunders existed in the Teutonic camp as in our own. Consequently, this means of attack was looked upon as a scientific poppy dream. If as much time and money were invested in biologic agent dispersion as in one bomber plane, the free world would have almost certainly gone down to defeat. The year that this was given was 1956, and the Axis powers was the Teutonic enemy that he was mentioning in his speech. But one person in the audience had not so long ago belonged to the Teutonic enemy, as Mitchell stated in his speech, before he would take a job that he had held at the time as the director of a new virus laboratory in West Germany in a city called to Bingen. And as listeners of this who are fully aware of the fact, but I'll just go ahead and say it, that after the conclusion of World War II, you know, America brought over more than 1,600 Nazi scientists, engineers, and technicians in what is called Operation Paperclip. So for a period of time, he was said to have worked for Russia after the war. That is Eric Traub that we are talking about. But he have been ordered to study germ warfare viruses before making what author Michael Christopher Carroll, the author of Lab 257, calls a daring escape to West Berlin in 1949. And Traub would then apply for paperclip employment, you know, after working on this uh, warfare, biological warfare research for the Nazis. And he would say concerning his application for paperclip employment that he wanted to do scientific work in the USA, become an American citizen, and be protected from Russian reprisals. So, you know, despite his brief stint in Russia, it didn't appear as if the Russians were all too happy with this Nazi madman, which, you know, given what the Nazis did to Russia during the Second World War and how many Russian men and women had, you know, lost their lives due to the Nazis and how many Russian soldiers would, you know, put their life down on the line to pre, uh, protect the East, you know, that makes some sense. But perhaps Eric Traub knew what side his bread would be best buttered on, if you want to put it like that. So he wanted to come to America. And so prior to this, he had been a lab, a lab chief at Incel Reims, a secret Nazi biological warfare laboratory located on an island in the Baltic Sea, where he worked directly for Reich leader of the SS, Heinrich Himmler, the second most powerful man in Nazi Germany. So he worked directly under Himmler. 
you know and so i mean it's been said by certain american leaders and stuff over the years and certain historians and stuff who are trying to whitewash things like operation paperclip and whatever that it wasn't you know the real bad nazis that were brought over it was just you know some lower level guys who weren't participants in crimes against humanity and stuff like that who just had some scientific knowledge that was of utility to the u.s but we have this guy, Traub, who worked directly under Heinrich Himmler, the second most powerful man in Nazi Germany. And Traub had worked on live germ trials. And in Lab 257, Carol tells of some of the work that Traub did for the Nazis. He packaged weaponized foot and mouth disease virus, which was dispersed from a Luftwaffe plant bomber onto cattle and reindeer in occupied Russia. At Himmler's request, Traub personally journeyed to the Black Sea coast of Turkey. There, amidst the lush Anatolian terrain, he searched for a lethal strain of Rinderpest virus for use against the Allies. Earlier in the war, he had been a captain in the German army, working as an expert on infectious animal diseases, particularly in horses. His veterinary corps led the germ warfare attacks on horses in the United States and Romania in World War I with a bacteria called glanders and it's interesting that foot and mouth disease is mentioned because foot and mouth disease is something that would be extensively researched at plum island and not only would it be extensively researched at plum island but it would even be accidentally released on the island luckily it didn't make its way outside of the island but it goes to show you some of the lax measures of Plum Island, and it's interesting that that would be one of Traub's specialties. But Traub also belonged to the Nazi Motorist Corps, or the NSKK, an organization ranked directly, directly behind the SA Stormtroopers and the SS. And so the group would be used to transport Nazi party members and men in the SS and things like that. And they would also serve as a ground for recruitment of German military men. And the group's first member was actually no other than the Fuhrer himself, Adolf Hitler. And so Traub would in the 30s become a member of the German-American Bund, a group open to German-American men and women that was designed to promote and support the Nazis. And this is an interesting group. I was doing a little bit of research. This is another one of those things where it could be a whole episode or two in and of itself. Um, I'm sure that somewhere there's probably a whole book written on the German-American bun, but it was interesting when I was doing research into them. But this group would establish multiple training camps, including the Camp Siegfried camp, where they would have like Nazi summer camp there and children in Yamphank, Long Island, which is located only 30 miles west of Plum Island, would canoe, swim, play sports, and receive an education in Nazi ideology. And... Traub would spend some time there. So the camp set out to raise the future leaders of America. And by this, they wanted to inculcate the future leaders of America with fascist beliefs. And the campgrounds was adorned with Nazi and Hitler youth flags, pictures of Ole Adolf himself. And one could easily find pictures of men photographed there in, you know, Italian-style black shirts, uniforms modeled after essay style brown shirts and other Nazi military garbs. And, you know, that wasn't all that was going on at Camp Siegfried, but over 40,000 people throughout the New York area would attend Nuremberg-style rallies there. They would march in lockstep while carrying Nazi flags, 
and they would burn effigies of Jewish congressmen and all kinds of other lovely stuff. So it seems like, you know, even when Traub was in the United States that he, you know, it, it, it begs belief that he ever really wanted to shed, you know, his belief in Nazi political ideology, at least not from anything that I've seen. But before the war, Traub had a fellowship at the Rockefeller Institute in Princeton, New Jersey, you know, and it was, you know, during his time in the States when he would be involved with the German-American Bund. But it was here at the Rockefeller Institute, which, you know, perhaps that they had they had more in agreement, the Rockefellers and Traub, than one would maybe think on the outset with the Rockefellers' interest in eugenics and, and stuff like that. You know, they were big funders of the eugenic movement. And, you know, still to this day, they're very concerned with things like overpopulation and whatnot, but I don't typically think that that applies to white Anglo-Saxon Protestant people and stuff. That's just for, you know, those brown and black people across seas or, you know, here in the United States, or if it's, you know, white people, white people of inferior genetic makeup who have, you know, mental disabilities like, you know, Appalachian people and stuff who at one time in American history would be, you know, not euthanized, what's the word that I'm looking for, like chemically neutered, I, I can't remember what what the proper term is for that, but anyhow, so none of the information that I have just shared here would stop the Navy from recruiting Dr. Traub and giving him a job at the Naval Medical Research Institute in Bethesda. And so when he got this job at the Navy Medical Research Institute in Bethesda, Maryland, after initially being stationed at Randolph Air Force Base, which I believe we maybe mentioned Randolph Air Force Base in a previous episode, I think in one of the Tom DeLong episodes, but um, I might be mistaken, but if I'm going to do a quick Google right here, you have to listen to me Google, folks. If Randolph Air Force Base is located in... Texas. Yeah, it is located in Texas. And I think that might be where, for those of you who read Chaos, where there was the weird MK Ultra research going on at Randolph Air Force Base. And there was the guy who would um, abuse and murder a young girl and kind of forget where he was and stuff. And this is kind of one of those classic instances of weird MK Ultra mind control, presumably, that took place. So I'm not sure if if that's it. I would have to double check, but I'm not going to do that right now. But I think that that might be what Randolph Air Force Base is. So for those of you guys who've read Chaos and know what I'm talking about, it's a very interesting portion in that book. And who knows? It might have also been one of those places where... Uh, Jolly West and some other not too chill of guys would work. But another paperclip scientist who would also find work at the Naval Medical Research Institute in Bethesda was Theodore Benzinger, who was an aviation doctor who Heinrich Himmler would invite to a viewing of a film of Dachau prisoners being subjected to high altitude simulations. And one of these guys was a 37-year-old Jewish man, and he would undergo this torture for 30 minutes before he began to wriggle his head and develop intense cramps and foam at the mouth before becoming unconscious and eventually dying. 
So he would be arrested for war crimes, but he would deny ever experimenting on prisoners, and he would evade any penalties at the Nuremberg doctor trial. And his obituary in the New York Times, I mean, you can look up Theodore Benzinger's obituary in the New York Times, and there is no direct mention of him being a Nazi. That does, you know, mention him briefly being like a German, a German army guy or something in the year blah blah blah, and it's like, huh, interesting wording of that. But instead of choosing to focus on him being a Nazi or any of this, you know, weird research into aviation stuff, where you know we have Dachau prisoners who ended up dying as a result of this research. They choose to focus on him being the inventor of the ear thermometer and his you know, work for Bethesda and the National Institute of Standards and Technologies, you know, the wonderful scientific group that, you know, with their superb research on why the World Trade Center buildings could just fall into their own footprint at near free fall speed, despite that never happening with a steel-structured high-rise building, but I digress, so let's return to Traub. So after two months into his paperclip work, Traub would be invited to the Army's Biological Warfare Headquarters at Fort Dietrich in Frederick, Maryland. And Fort Dietrich, I mean, it's still a topic of conversation. We talked about that in the past couple episodes, whether it be Dr. Bruce Ivins getting framed, all the anthrax stuff that was going on here. And speaking of anthrax, I actually think one of the guys who was one of the initial kind of founding fathers of Plum Island might have been one of the, you know, first like big anthrax researchers into anthrax being used as a biological warfare weapon. But I can't remember that guy's name right now. Don't, don't, don't trust me on that. But I do think that that is the case. But anyways, he would be invited, Trobwood, to the Army's Biological Warfare Headquarters at Dietrich. And Carol describes, you know, the people who he met with as germ warriors and CIA operatives. And so this discussion would later become known through a declassified top secret summary, which reads, Dr. Traub is a noted authority on viruses and diseases in Germany and Europe. This interrogation revealed much information of value to the animal disease program from a biological warfare point of view. Dr. Traub discussed work done at a German animal disease station during World War II and subsequent to the war when the station was under Russian control. And so Carroll would say that it was Traub's explanation of his work at Incel Reims and his activities during the war that would lay the groundwork for Fort Dietrich's offshore germ, germ warfare animal disease lab on Plum Island, the subject of today's episode. And Carol would call Traub one of the founding fathers of the Plum Island facility. And so basically after Traub meets with these Fort Dietrich and CIA guys, all of a sudden right after that, we have Plum Island set up. And we even have Traub at the Plum Island opening day ceremony. So it seems as if what he had to tell these guys at Dietrich was kind of instrumental in the decision to open up Plum Island. And so Carol would say um, he would write of you know some of Traub's work in America, and here's what he would say. Little is publicly available about his clandestine activities for the U.S. military. The name of two studies, Experiments with Chick Embryo Adapted Foot and Mouth Disease and Studies on In Vitro Multiplication of Newcastle Disease Virus in Chicken Blood, were made available under the Freedom of Information Act, but the research reports themselves and many others were withheld. With his laboratory assistant, Ann Berger, who came over in 1951, 
Traub experimented with over 40 lethal viruses on large test animals. Traub also spent time at the USDA laboratories in Beltsville, Maryland, where he isolated a new weapons-grade virus strain in the USDA lab, studying a virulent strain of a new virus that caused human infections. Traub showed how it adapted neurotropically in humans by voraciously attacking nerve and brain tissues. This was the same pone virus that infected a human in Plum Island's first-ever germ experiment one year later. So in 1953, West Germany would build its own equivalent to the Insel Reims facility, and they would ask Traub to return to his native land, which he would do, but he was only allowed to do so under certain conditions. And here is a quote. In view of Dr. Traub's eminence as an international authority and the recognizable military potentialities and the possible application of his specialty, it is recommended that future surveillance and appropriate measures be maintained after the specialist return to Germany. And so, in other words, this would mean that the CIA would be all up in his business. So, when the lab in West Germany opened, he would receive a favor from his Plum Island buddies who would actually ship over starter strains of viruses. And also, USD officials would often come and frequent the West German lab. He would go visit the lab in Plum Island. So, it seemed as if no one in the American elite cared about his work under Heinrich Himmler and the Nazis' cancer research program which is kind of their euphemism, their code name for the biological warfare program. Or, you know, they also didn't care that he attended Camp Siegfried. They didn't, they didn't care about any of this other stuff, only his utility in teaching them about biological warfare. And so his buddies at the USDA would, you know, come visit him in his lab. And he, they had an affinity for him that would offer, and they would even offer him a job as Plum Island's top scientist not once, but two separate times. So almost as soon as Plum Island was chosen as the location for a new lab, Traub would be contacted by Dr. Doc Shahan for establishing the germ lab and getting a position there. So Carol writes, Six years later and only two years after Traub squirmed in his seat at the Plum Island dedication ceremony, senior scientist Dr. Jacob Traum retired. The USDA needed someone of outstanding caliber with a long established reputation internationally as well as nationally to fill Dr. Trom's shoes, but somehow it couldn't find a suitable American. As a last resort, it is now proposed that a foreigner be employed. The Aggies' choice? Eric Traub, who was in their, new, who was in their view the most desirable candidate from any source. The 1958 secret USDA memorandum, Justification for Employment of Dr. Eric Traub, conveniently omitted his World War II activities, but it did emphasize that his originality, his originality, scientific abilities, and general competence as an investigator were developed at the Rockefeller Institute in New Jersey in the 1930s. The letters supporting Traub to lead Plum Island came in from fellow Plum Island founders. I hope that every effort will be made to get him. He has had a long and productive experience in both pre-war and post-war Germany, said Dr. William Hagen, dean of the Cornell University Veterinary School, carefully dispensing with his wartime activities. The final word came from his dear American friend and old Rockefeller Institute boss, Dr. Richard Shope, who described Traub as a careful, skillful, productive, and very original, and one of the world's most outstanding virologists. So Shope's sole reference to Traub at war 
was during the war he was in germany serving in the german army so traub would reject the offer to work at plum island though he would visit the island frequently and in 1960 he would have to step down from his role in the west german lab after what carol describes as a dark cloud of financial embezzlement so it does appear as if traub most definitely helped establish plum island and kind of tell fort dietrich and the u.s biological weapons program kind of the direction that they were heading in in nazi germany and about some of their research and it's only after this meeting that they would basically directly go and decide let's get plum island and one of the reasons that they wanted to get plum island is because the prevailing winds from the island would take everything out to sea at least ideally but you know can't really control which way the wind blows but Anyhow, Traub would continue to do lab work and uh, infrequently for a few years after this uh, embezzlement charge kind of came along. But before becoming what Dr. Robert Shope described as a defeated man when he would go to have dinner with him in the later half of the 70s. And then in 85, Traub died unexpectedly in his sleep at the ripe old age of 70, 78 years old. And no, he did not ever have to go any trials for his war crimes or any Nazi affiliations that he had. But in fact, it only really seemed as if Traub was rewarded for his past at every step of the way. And so in 1979, attorney John Loftus, and we mentioned him earlier, would receive a job from the Justice Department in a unit called the Office of Special Investigations which was set up to find Nazis in hiding and to expose Nazi war crimes. And so Loftus was given access to review sealed files, and he got top-secret clearance, and he would go on to tell the public that Nazis had been protected by the CIA and the State Department, which I'm sure for this audience is no big shocker. But he would also have multiple spooks contact, contact him after the publication of his book, the formerly mentioned Belarus Secret. And so some of them would even give him documents pertaining to covert operations, and he would then use this information to do things like uncovering the Nazi past life, the Nazi life, the Nazi past, man, can't talk, to uncover the Nazi past of the Austrian president and the also the UN Secretary General Kurt Waldheim, who had been part of a German army unit that had terrorized yugoslavia and so one thing that loftus had mentioned in his book the belarus secret which had which he had learned from his spy connections really does pertain to our discussion of plum island so i'll just read this brief little snippet from the belarus secret even more disturbing are the records of nazi germ warfare scientists who came to america they experimented with poison ticks dropped from planes to spread rare diseases I have received some information suggesting that the U.S. tested some of these poison ticks on the Plum Island Artillery Range off the coast of Connecticut during the early 1950s. Most of the germ warfare records have been shredded, but there is a top-secret U.S. document confirming that clandestine attacks on crops and animals took place at this time. So Traub had been working for, you know, the American Biological Weapons Program from 1949 through 1953 before he would hike it on back up to West Germany. 
but it is known that he would consult with the CIA and Fort Detrick scientists, as well as working for the USDA for a brief period of time. And Traub was also known to have visited Plum Island at least three times and to regularly speak with the Plum Island director, Doc Shahan, in 1952. And I would suspect that it is very likely that he visited Plum Island many more times than that. And the fact that he was ever given permission to visit is very damning evidence in and of itself because at the inception of Plum Island's existence, while it would go on to have very lax facilities, um, security measures in their facilities, at its inception, it absolutely did not. They did seem to take things pretty seriously. Nobody who did not work there was allowed to come onto the island. Any animal that came onto the island would be shot on sight. Basically, if you did not have explicit permission in a job at Plum Island, if you came onto the island, you weren't leaving. And even those who did work on the island, uh, I read something, if I remember correctly, in Lab 257, that they would you know, take showers with special chemicals and stuff that were made to kill any possible bacteria or virus or anything that could have gone on them and to working underneath their, you know, clean underneath their fingernails, every inch of their body. And the record for most showers in a day was 16. Because basically, every time that you did anything or came into contact with any new part of the facility, you would have to derobe and shower. And so, at the beginning of Plum Island's existence, you know, the fact that he even ever got to go out there at all, aside from the opening day ceremony, you know, where others were allowed to attend, and I was before that they really had any research going on there. But the fact that he was ever even allowed onto Plum Island is damning in and of itself. And so, uh, the files that were found amongst the USDA files, um, by some researchers, two of which that there were two separate files which read E. Traub, and one of these files contained a, a paper called I'm, I'm sorry, man, I am just doing bad or woman if you're a lady listening to this. But you know, files were found amongst USDA files, two of which said t tick research, and a third that read E. Traub. And these three files they were empty. And so that is very interesting and they had all kinds of dust collected on them and were still taped shut. So it leads one to believe that they were empty ever since that they were kind of put there. But anyhow, let's turn to Carol again to consider how lax some of the germ warfare testing at the time was. So, I mean, they did at Plum Island at, at its inception, you know, take things inside the facility very seriously. But as far as some of the outdoor germ warfare testing and stuff that they were doing at this time, it was still pretty lax. And, you know, they took things more seriously at the beginning. But, I mean, just the fact that they were even operating so close to, you know, the mainland to the United States in the first place is awfully concerning. But Carol writes, preposterous as it sounds, clandestine outdoor germ warfare trials were almost routine during this period. In 1952, the Joint Chiefs of Staff called for a vigorous, well-planned, large-scale biological warfare test program with all interested agencies participating. 
And a top secret letter to the Secretary of Defense later that year stated, steps should be taken to make certain adequate facilities to make sure certain adequate facilities are available, including those at Fort Detrick, Dugway Proving Ground, Fort Terry, which is Plum Island, and an island field testing area. Was Plum Island the island field testing area? Indeed, when the Army first scouted Plum Island for its Cold War designs, they charted wind speeds and directions and found that, much to their liking, the prevailing winds blew out to sea. Okay, so the fact that, you know, the wind tended to carry out to the sea, as I briefly mentioned, that was one of the big selling points for the Plum Island location. But as everyone aside from, you know, maybe Cold War lunatic fanatics know, you can't control which way the wind blows. And another thing is one of the agencies, uh, one of the interested agencies that was mentioned in that above quote was the USDA, which had tested anti-crop germ spray throughout the Midwest. And there are other examples of weird outdoor biological warfare research going on. Uh, another one of those is examples was um, of a bi of an outdoor germ test on American soil by our government was when the Fort Detrick Special Operations Division conducted vulnerability tests where they had operatives walk around San Francisco and Washington, D.C., with brief briefcase carrying, hopefully I pronounce this right, Seratia marcinicens, um, and there were perforations in their luggage, which allowed the bacteria to escape into airports and to bus terminals, where the flow of this bacteria was then traced. And 11 people would become infected with this novel infection and taken into hospitals, and one of them would die as a result. So essentially just Fort Detrick Special Operations Division just conducted a biological attack against the American populace, populace for, you know, scientific reasons. And this bacteria had been recommended by none other than the Nazi germ czar, Dr. Kurt Blome, who was at one point Eric Traub's nominal supervisor, and Blum was also a Nuremberg defendant. So once again, we can just see the Nazi germ warfare to, you know, American Fort Detrick uh, CIA crowd pipeline in existence. But the special operations men in the summer of 1966 would toss light bulbs filled with benign bacillus subtilis onto train tracks uh, in a subway and the trains, you know, would carry the material throughout the subway system. And this theoretically killed over a million passengers. There's also stories of turkey feathers contaminated with the Newcastle virus being dropped over University of Wisconsin farms. Hog cholera bombs were detonated at 15,000 feet. And the list goes on. And, I mean, we also know that, I mean, even things that are well-known. I mean, like, there's the Tuskegee experiments where black men were injected with syphilis by the CDC and, and whatnot. I mean, we know that the American government, both back then and up until this day, has experimented on American citizens. I mean, we still have, you know, soldiers. I've, I've met veterans who have gone weird experimental vaccines and, and stuff like that. All of this stuff is going on in some sort of capacity in one way or the other. I mean, we were all just locked down for what, in my opinion, truly seems to be 
a either leak from the Wuhan virus, uh, uh, the Wuhan lab, Wuhan virus. Now I'm sounding like a Trump guy. What either seems to be a leak from the Wuhan lab or a direct release. I mean, who's to say? But anyhow, so a lot of this weird research is still going on. But it was going on back then, and they seem to be a little bit more laissez-faire about outdoor biological warfare testing. But Carroll theorizes that the Army could have used the island for outdoor tests and that the USDA could have even participated in these tests. And it's not all that far-fetched because the Palm Island Agreement permitted the Army to commandeer the island from the USDA at any given time if it was in, in the classic American phrase, in the interest of national security. Anytime that I hear in the interest of national security or this document can't be released because of national security, I could go the rest of my life without ever hearing the phrase national security. I don't feel like I often hear the phrase national security in the context of anything good. But anyhow, Carol writes, Traub might have monitored the test. A source who worked on Plum Island in the 1950s recalls that the animal handlers and a scientist released ticks outdoors on the island. They called him the Nazi scientist when they came in in 1951. They were inoculating these ticks. And a picture he once saw shows the animal handler pointing to the area on Plum Island where they released the ticks. Dr. Traub's World War II handiwork consisted of aerial virus sprays developed on incel reams and tested all over occupied Russia and a fieldwork for Heinrich Himmler in Turkey. Indeed, his colleagues conducted bug trials by dropping live beetles from planes. An outdoor tick trial would have been de rigueur to Eric Traub. So I just looked up how to pronounce it and it's de rigueur apparently, not de rigueur or whatever the hell it is that I just said and that's one of those phrases that i've only ever read like i know the meaning of it but i you know have only been able to get what it seems like it sounds like i've never heard it pronounced but anyhow um that was the episode the first episode on plum island and we covered some pretty interesting stuff in today's episode and we're going to get into some even more interesting stuff in the next episode we're going to get into possible biological warfare against Cuba. We'll talk a little bit more about Lyme's disease. We're going to talk about some of the outbreaks that happened at Plum Island and some of the other things that it might be associated with, like West Nile virus and some other things. So we've got a lot to cover, a lot of interesting stuff to say about Plum Island. I will try and leave all the sources down below. Um, definitely some of those sources are Lab 257, The Disturbing Story of the Government Secret Germ Laboratory by Michael Christopher Carroll. And then there is also Bitten, the story of, oh, it's not the story, it's like uh, germ warfare and Lyme's disease. But anyways, Bitten by Chris Newby, that's going to be another one. There is also the Belarus Secret by John Loftus, which we mentioned in today's episode. And then there was a couple article. There was the Snopes article about uh, Lyme's disease, which is, you know, basically shit talking Chris Newby's book on it, which gained some popularity. 
And um, Chris Newby also made a good documentary called Under the Skin. So I didn't mention that in today's episode, but we'll probably talk about it a little bit in next episode when we're talking about Wally Borddorfer. And we're going to talk about him in relations to Lyme's disease and what Chris Newby has to say about him. But anyways, those were the main sources. There's also some smaller ones like, uh, you know, that deer can swim 10 miles and what have you. But that is going to conclude our episode today. Make sure to check out next week's episode where we're going to talk even more about Plum Island. It's going to be a good time and we're going to have some interesting stuff to say. If you enjoyed this episode, if you've enjoyed some of the other episodes, if you are enjoying things observed as a whole, please just leave a stars some stars some reviews that's the word i'm looking for you know review it on your favorite podcast streaming platform if it has that option it helps it get to be seen by more people i believe makes it seem a little bit more authoritative you know so i appreciate that if you want to get in touch with me on twitter thing observer and you can DM me. DMs are open. I'm always happy to hear from people. That's the best way to get in contact with me. But anyways, that's going to do it for today's episode. And why don't y'all just get a little crazy. Cut back. Have a good time. If you got a cat, why about you go pet it backwards the way that annoys them? Uh, if, if, if you're wearing a shirt with a collar, pop that shit. Do it right now. Uh, what about you unzip your pants until someone politely tells you that your pants are unzipped and then you look at them intensely in the eye and you go, I like them like that. I don't know. Get a little bit crazy. Live it up. Have fun. But don't get too crazy. Because if you get too crazy, you might just get locked up or worse. And you won't be able to listen to next week's episode. But anyways, my name's Luke Marshall. This has been Things Observed. I had a good time talking with y'all, and I look forward to the next time that I get to talk with y'all. And so, what you should do is stay tuned. Love you all. Bye-bye. Let's have a baby to save the marriage that we